and we'd get somebody in the community who would sing. They weren't, prof lot of them weren't, prof they weren't actually professional performers, but they were good storytellers or musicians or singers. So I think in a way, I think that endeared the group to these communities. Mm. And for the first time ever, they were getting their, their music and culture and songs were being respected. Ryan's Fancy last performed almost 40 years ago. But even today, the band is revered in small towns across Atlantic Canada as the one that made East Coast music cool. Dermot O'Reilly, Fergus O'Byrne, and Dennis Ryan found a large and loyal following by merging the songs of their youth with Canadian tunes discovered at kitchen parties and iconic bars like the Strand Lounge in St. John's and Johnny Reed's in Charlottetown. Ryan's Fancy celebrated Atlantic Canadian culture in a way never before seen. The boys performed for prime ministers, a president, and the queen, but more importantly in communities like Craig Nish, Montague, and Old Perlican. Today, Dennis Ryan looks back on 50 years of rambling. He's been a civil servant, investment advisor, entrepreneur, and YouTube sensation. And today he joins Because Life is Local to discuss the legacy of Ryan's fancy and what he's learned along the way. Right off the top, let me give thanks to our show sponsor, Robin's Donuts, locally owned and operated by noted island businessman Kent Scales, with 13 outlets ready to serve you across PEI. Make sure you drop by Robin's Donuts today. 50 years. God, when you think about it. 50 years. Jeez, where does the time go? Well, let, let's talk about that, but let's start perhaps in uh, 2004. Um, there are 10,000 people in Mile One Stadium in St. John's. Great Big C uh, in Ducks. Ryan's Fancy with the Helen Creighton Lifetime Achievement yep. Award. Yep. Standing ovation. Yourself, Fergus O'Byrne, Dermot O'Reilly yep. are on the stage again. Yep. Tell us about the moment and what it meant. Well, for me, you know, I lived in Newfoundland from 71 to 77. And then uh, went to PEI for three years and uh, at the encouragement of your late father, Jim McNeil, and uh, I've been in Halifax uh, since 1980. But going back to Newfoundland for that special award at the uh, Mile High Stadium, wherever it's called, at uh, 10,000 people, the Prime Minister- Mile High and Mile Water, a little different. Are they the same? Mile High is, where's that? Well, it's what you do 30,000 feet up. Oh no, I thought it was in, was in Denver. Oh, Jason got it, it all wrong. Denver. But anyway, we'll keep going. Um, so, Prime Minister Paul Martin was there, and uh, Danny Williams, the Premier of Newfoundland, and Dermot and Fergus, of course, and uh, sort of came out of the out of the blue, but and it was very uh, sort of coincidental or not ironic, but that uh, Great Big C and Alan Doyle would make that presentation because Dermot produced in the basement of his house in Tar Bay in Newfoundland the first two CDs for Great Big C. And, uh, you know, and they, they sort of carried on the mantle and actually Great Big Sea and the Irish Descendants and a bunch of other... Newfoundland is a phenomenal place anyway for folk music. I don't think you can see it any place in Canada for a population of a half a million people. And the material, the writers, the uh, artists in general, painters, sculptors. And, um, and uh, so Great Big Sea went on to be... Actually, they made a name for themselves on the international stage. But, but the, the reverence that Ryan's Fancy is held in, even today, I mean, that night in particular with, with Great Big C sort of 
presenting you with the award, but the, the adulation from the crowd. I mean, what was it, do you think, well, about Ryan's fancy that made it unique? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons, I think. We went to Newfoundland in 19. I went first, not with Ryan's fancy. I think we are call it Son of His Gypsies at the time, or maybe the Sons. I was with, me and Dermot and Fergus were with uh, one or two other groups at the time. There was O'Reilly's Men for a Shorts. I was never with them. That was Dermot's group. And we had Sons of Aaron, and we lasted a few months there, and we had Son of the Gypsies, and we lasted a few months there. We went to Newfoundland in 71 to live, but we were all living in Toronto, and we wanted to go to Newfoundland to go to university and, uh, and use the music as a way of putting us through school. Uh, I was married. I'd, I, I had yet two of my kids were born then, and Dermot had two of his kids born in Toronto, and Fergus was single. And uh, so we started off this career in Newfoundland playing at the Strand Lounge, and lo and behold, mm. these people were coming in from all over the place, so we, we weren't far from Memorial University. The Strand and Lounge was a, a bar in a, a mall, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, yeah. There was, what happened was, all these kids from around the bay were coming in, and they're all of a sudden seeing, these are people singing our music. And I presume we were sort of hip at the time, just the whole folk revival, people had long beards and long hair and we were all half mad at the time. And in our 20s, and it was an exciting period. And then we started picking up Newfoundland songs that were very similar to Irish and Scottish songs. The melodies in most Newfoundland uh, traditional songs came from either the West Country of England or from Ireland. And uh, we dug right into that with great fun. And all of a sudden people are saying, they're singing, they're singing. I get, still to this day, I get people uh, thanking us for coming to Newfoundland and bringing the music out of the bay and bringing it into the city, etc., etc. You, you get a lot of credit, the band gets a lot of credit for, for making traditional music acceptable yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was an interesting mix of people in Orion's cr fancy crowd, as I understand it, because I'm not old enough. I only saw you play once live. Um, the, the young folks, as you mentioned, but also the sort of the, the more senior members of the community who would all show up together and there would be this amazing mix of people at, at your shows. Totally. That was, that, that's, I think, what's made it tr truly exciting for us. You know, we'd have grandkids uh, and their grandparents coming in to see us. Uh, whether it be concerts or playing at the... We had three main places, in, so we, we sort of grew out of Newfoundland. A lot of people think we were born in Newfoundland. We weren't. We decided to live there. Newfoundland was a very exciting period in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, it was coming into its own. Joey Smallwood was sort of uh, get, getting prepared to, to hit out of town, and Frank Moores came in. So the, you had that, and all the great writers like Al Pittman, Harold Harwood, uh, Michael Cook, um, all, the, all these great Jerry Squires, all these great artists, Pratt, Mary Pratt, and, and her, her husband, Christopher. So you had all, all that exciting stuff that was happening. They were, they were coming of age, even though they were of age for three or 400 years before that, right? So like the Irish were coming to Newfoundland, a lot of people don't know this, but the Irish were coming to Newfoundland pre-famine. The bi biggest exodus of immigration to Canada from 1800 to 1815 was uh, 30,000 Irish went from the southeastern part of Ireland to live in Newfoundland. That was massive in those days. Let's talk about how you came. You're, you're, you're from County Tipperary in, in, in Ireland. What was, what was your route and reason for coming to Canada? Well, I was born in Newport County Tipperary, a small farm. 
I remember when we got television in 1960. I remember when we got electricity. I remember when we got indoor plumbing. <laughs> and uh, so does your mother. <laughs> <laughs> My poor mother. Anyway, so we are. Uh, on a small farm, we always celebrated feast, harvest, or whatever, or people coming home from England or whatever in America, and we always have house dances because we we always entertain ourselves. Neighbors entertain themselves. My father was a great singer, traditional singer. Uh, he played the accordion a bit, and I remember growing up the, the dances. Like we're a little further north latitude here, so in the summertime, harvest time. You know, the sun wouldn't, uh, would be up at 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.30. And I remember house dances as a kid in my kitchen that would go on till, uh, that started sundown and they'd be still at it and the sun coming up. So we grew up with all, and then we went to school. Uh, we were taught Irish music, it was a, uh, Irish culture, history in particular, because we just had become, uh, we had shed the British yoke in uh, 1916 or 1922 and uh, so we, we our, our songs and music in school was basically the folk songs of Ireland uh, and we were taught the traditional instruments like the fiddle or the penny whistle or whatever and in our at a party in our house for example or a neighbor's house you either had to tell a story you had to play a tune or sing a song or do something every went around everybody had to do yeah. something so I grew up in that atmosphere, I grew up in that culture, and that's, I think, where I got my love of traditional music in general, whether it's Scottish or Irish or Newfoundland or Cape Breton or whatever. So how did you, how did you end up in Canada? Well, I went to, after high school, I went to Dublin, lived there for a few years, got involved in the folk music thing. There was a group came back to Ireland. I was 23, and uh, my wife was pregnant with Colleen and uh, I saw an ad for a paper to go to join a group in Toronto. <laughs> no money shagged off to Toronto, joined this group called the Irish Rebels, and I was, I was in the place playing with him at the Golden Night Nugget on uh, Young and Bloor Street, and the union came in and said, hey, you've got to be a six-month landed immigrant before you can uh, play in this club. It's a unionized uh, club. And I never knew anything about that, so I'd head off. And my wife lived with a friend of hers, and she was five months pregnant, I went lived with a few of the guys. And I went off to Newfoundland and did touring around there. That's how I got my. That's where I got the love of Newfoundland. Right. And and you, you sort of uh, you're, you're known for ballads. When did you sort of find your voice in that respect? Was that something you did as a kid? I, th um, I, th I think so. That's, an, that's an, yeah. Because when I was living in Dublin in the '60s during that whole folk thing, I was a civil servant. And but we that had must have gone over oh, well yeah. with the government. <laughs> <laughs> but we do two nights a week. <laughs> You know, and the Parnell Folk House, just at the top of O'Connell Street in Dublin, we got 10 shillings each and four pints. So the four pints were more important than the 10 shillings. Mm. And, uh, and by the way, ironically, Dermot O'Reilly, who became my partner, I never knew him in Ireland. Dermot used to play there two nights as well, in the but same club. I remember taking a walk with you through Dublin, sort of the Dublin you remembered of the 1960 era. And you had met the poet Kavanaugh, who wrote yeah. Raglan Road yeah. and all those yeah. things. It must have been just an incredibly dynamic oh. environment to be in yeah. at the time. Yeah, and again, keep in mind that, you know, Ireland was only 50 years old 50, as an independent country. And, you know, you had the, the, the Yates and the Sings and the Shaws and um, uh, the O'Cases. And I remember meeting Patrick Cavanaugh. I do, I do indeed. And I know the late, I, more than that, some of the great poems that he wrote and Raglan wrote for sure, but he, uh, 
I know that I know that lady. I met her, and I don't know. She probably died forty years ago. But he was secretly in love with her, and I knew her husband. He was a minister of education or something. What was that? Donald O'Malley. Yeah. Yeah, from Limerick, and it was his wife that Patrick Kavanagh had had the eye for, and he used to see her sitting on the canal there, right? Yeah. But uh, she was a beautiful woman. Uh, it was an amazing story. He was a great poet, and I'm, I also had a, uh, the luck to meet. Uh, I was fortunate to meet through the Canadian ambassador to Dublin some years ago, uh, Lyola Hearn, who was a poet himself from the southern shore of Newfoundland, who's Canada's ambassador, and he was great, became a very good friend of Pete St. John, who wrote some yeah. great songs. Fields the of Fields Rye. Classic mm. in itself, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, that was also a time when the Clancy brothers were breaking international barriers. Yeah. Yeah. So was there a sense that anything is possible so you can just jump on a plane to North America and sort of well, catch the no, wave? I, no, I, my, my, that might be actually maybe in the back of my mind. I think when you're young, you're 23 and you're 24, you play a few instruments, you sing a few songs, you're not great at anything, but you can do a bit of everything, right? Yeah. And um, just I always knew I wanted to leave Ireland. I, it was a third world country then, but I always knew I wanted to go away someplace. I didn't want to go to America. I was My two spots... Uh, I was thinking of England because I had a lot of aunts in England, so I went, but I said that's too close because if I go there, I can come back. And the two places I, w I was sort of intended to go was either Australia. In those days, uh, and some of our viewers out there uh, from the British background know you could get for £10, uh, you could go, they were, you were assisted to go to uh, Australia or New Zealand. Oh. And, uh, but I, I think the reason I came here, I felt. It wasn't as far as Australia, maybe if I got very homesick, I'd go home. Yeah. And I told everybody at home, myself included, to convince myself, no crying or anything. I'm only going for two years and I'll be back. Because right. that was 50 years ago. 50 years ago. Tell me how the, the band evolved from, you know, the, the original bookings at the Strand to sort of growing this cult-like almost following not only in communities in Newfoundland, but if you drive up Route 19 in Cape Breton yeah, or yeah. in certain communities yeah. in PEI, like yeah. in my hometown, Montague, yeah. where you played yeah. the lobster shanty, yeah. you'll still find people who will talk about Ryan's Fancy, and you haven't played a gig since 1983. Yes, I know. Well, I, I think we were just fortunate. And to go back to, the Clancy brothers did break the barrier for all of us, but they also hit the time with the Bob Dylans and the Tom Paxons and the Pete Seegers and the Joan Baez. It was a great fun time of folk music, and I think a lot of that stuff came out of the protest stuff and the Vietnam War. And, and, it was, and everybody was becoming very proud, because of communications and stuff, of their own culture. Mm. And uh, we, all, we were all a little different than everybody else. Like Scot Scotland is very similar to us, but they had the Corries and all those great groups, Kenneth McKellar and all those. Jimmy Shand, all those fabulous performers. I used to listen to BBC as a kid, because again, we had no television. I'd be picking up the radio stations, uh, Radio Luxembourg for rock and roll, and BBC Scotland for the, some of the great Scottish music. But um, what is your question again? <laughs> I'm rambling on here. I can keep going till the cows come home. Um, I, I think I wanted to just talk about the loyalty that communities, small communities oh, yeah. throughout, not big communities, places like Craignish or Montague or where Port of Basque. Well, I. I, I think in a way, uh, because we weren't travelling far, we had to make a living, we had to stay home, we had kids, we were going to school. So the Strand Lounge in St John be became our sort of anchor place. And we, thank God that thing was blocked every night in the Avalon Mall. And uh, we had, in Prince Edward Island, we had the Prince Edward lo uh, Lounge. Johnny Reed was our employer there back in the 70s and early 80s. 
and we had a Black Knight Lounge in Halifax. So these three places were, and most of the people that came to see us in these places were students or younger people that were in from the, the rural parts of Nova Scotia or, or PEI or whatever. And, um, we, and we got one lucky, uh, you know, we'd, geez, we'd go up to the Southern Shore in Newfoundland, we'd go up to Old Perlican, Grand Falls. These are, like, overnight we could go up to Gander or Clarenville and do a gig. And, uh, you know, so we wouldn't be gone for long for, you know, Friday and Saturday nights, particularly in, in these parts of the world, the big nights, and I'd have to get babysitters or sometimes the wife would come or whatever. But we were young and foolish and we had to pay the bills and we loved the music. And then as we go around to these rural places, people would invite us into their houses and they'd say, have you heard of this one? Have you seen this one? I have a song for you. And so all of a sudden that all opened up to us and we got a great break in 1972, I think. We were playing at the Prince Edward Lounge in the summer, and they were recording a sing-along jubilee. It was the big show in Canada then, the entertainment show. And it came out of Halifax, I think, every Wednesday night at 7.30. People in Canada would say, because only two or three stations then, who are the guests tonight, or blah, blah, blah. And Murray had sort of made it big and left sing-along jubilee, and a young singer, 16 years of age, called Shirley Eckert, Eckert beautiful voice, and I should send her some flowers by the way, but she got sick and we were in PEI and they were stuck for, uh, for so we said there's three orangutans playing over there to Prince Edward Lounge, bring him over. So they sent a plane for us. So who was it that, that sort of got you involved in that? Who, uh, they, Manny, Manny Pitson was the, the late Manny Pitson who used to produce Sing Along Jubilee and he went on afterwards actually to Hamilton, Ontario, he left CBC and he took up Don Messer there, he took Harry Hibshaw, he took, that's how we got, he took us up to, with Tommy Makem to Hamilton to start that series in 73. But we got a guest in, uh, spot on Sing Along Jubilee. That year, from that spot we got three more guest spots. So, you know, people, Yes, I remember well. I remember the song I sang at that show, and I remember the feedback. I was wearing the clatter ring at the time, and people saw it when I was playing the penny whistle, and they were, what sort of a ring was that? So, so people would write in. You know, there was no emailing or, or, or texting in those days. People write letters, and we. So then people got to know us around Atlantic Canada, and then we got to many got to. That was through CBC. Then we had the CBC series in the middle 70s where we went in different locations around the Maritimes and Newfoundland where we'd have theme shows and basically in rural areas like uh, farming for example we did a show with a fellow called Tommy Banks who was a great traditional singer in Allendale and Prince Edward Island we did war songs here in Halifax we did we did one in Dorchester on prison songs and, um, and we did a few around Newfoundland and Labrador so we did one on rum running actually and we were based down in Beta Spare in Newfoundland and we got a chance to go over to St. Pierre where Al Capone kept some of his goodies. And, uh, and we sang songs to that, uh, these areas. And we got, to, we, the late Al Pittman who worked with us at the time was a great poet and writer. He did our research. And we'd get somebody in the community who would sing. They weren't, prof lot of them weren't, prof they weren't actually professional performers, but they were good storytellers or musicians or singers. So I think in a way, I think, that endeared the group to these communities. Mm. And for the first time ever, they were getting their, their music and culture and songs were being respected. And, uh, and I was very fortunate, because that, would, that you, would... You didn't just do a show and jump on a bus and leave either. You, you stayed, you probably went to your share of after parties. <laughs> I was blessed 
to work with two phenomenal people. Dermot O'Reilly is probably one of the most talented, the late Dermot O'Reilly I've ever worked in my life. And uh, just on that note, I remember Tommy Makem saying that Dermot was his favourite Irish performer of all time. And Tommy was the guru in our business. And Fergus, and Dermot grew up with the rock and roll uh, stuff in Dublin. And Fergus started to grow up with a classical background, learning classical piano and stuff in Dublin. I was the sort of the bay man in the group that grew up with, with the music in, the, in my own community. And the guys were really solid. I was, if you, if anything in business or anything in life, surround yourself with people better than yourself. Mm. And I was very fortunate that I had these two guys. I'm honest to God, they were just unbelievable. And the 12 or 13 years we were together, it was a long time for a performing group to stay together. I don't think we ever, we ever had a racket. Maybe the odd time we couldn't find Dermot. <laughs> but, <laughs> but to go back to what you're saying is, Fergus and we used to love to sing, go back to people's houses. Like Mike McDougall, the first time we met him up in Inganish, we sit up all night singing and dancing and he was a fantastic fiddle player. And, and, uh, and Dermot just loved to sing. He'd write the odd song himself too. And uh, but he was, the boys would just love to sing. And these communities, they'd be picking, they'd be collecting songs too from, from the region, right? And Fergus had a great knack for that stuff. But I must say to go back to, we'd be picking, getting on the bus or the, or the car or whatever to shag off and go home. Many a time, we'd be a day late going home, you know. But that's because we all got caught up in the excitement. It was a, it was a simpler era, and people couldn't tra track you down or find out where you were. When you entered a town, it was a thing, you know. Yeah. It was noticed. Yeah. Three guys with beards walking yeah, around. No question. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, yeah, that was cutting edge stuff at the time too. I must say. Um, tell me about the t television shows, the, the like the Sing Along Jubilee sort of elevated your 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 persona nationally yeah. um, and that sort of set in process a whole series of dominoes that yeah. um, you, you did get your own television show yep. it was unique in that you know it was the first time at least in Canada potentially in Newfoundland uh, North America where uh, the, the, the chieftains yeah. played on, yeah, on oh, television. Oh, that show. See, we had the series, the 13-week series, I told you, on CBC for uh, Atlantic Had, where we went out to different communities with a different theme, whether it was rum running or immigration or war songs. Out of that sing-along jubilee, that producer, director of Manny, late Manny Pitson, he said, you guys come to, we're going to do a series out of Hamilton, Ontario. And we did it in a pub setting at the Irish Club in Hamilton. And uh, 26 shows a year for three years that was syndicated on the C CTV network and Irish television bought it too and uh, we had we had we had great fun in that and there was that was the Tommy Makem Ryan's Fancy series I remember Manny say, saying you know what you need somebody stronger you, I, you need somebody so I called Tommy Makem up the nicest man I've ever met I met him by the way in 1963 when I was 18 years of age uh, on a plane on the way to London Clancy's first time ever in Ireland he was going to do a BBC show He's, he, was the, he was a gentleman, a scholar, brilliant man, by the way, great actor, great singer, had a total encyclopedic mind. And uh, so I called him, I said, Tommy, you'll come up and do a show with us here. We're going to do his pilot show. Oh, sure I will. And he was the easiest going guy. My God, I wanted him to be the, the leader of the group. And he said, no, you invited me. So we had three years of that. That was fantastic. Yeah. Chiefs came, oh, that's a, they came in 75, uh, I think. And we had a series in Hamilton, and the first time, I don't know whether it was in America, definitely in Canada, the first time they performed was in our show. And that year, the Chieftains had, um, 
had uh, supplied the music or did the music for Barry, the movie Barry Lyndon, and that won an Academy Award. Wow. So it's ironic that the Chieftains were here recently, probably their last tour, and Paddy called me up and asked me would I MC the, their, their concert here in Halifax. He wanted me to go to Sydney too, but they were amazing altogether. He's the only original guy from that group in 1975, would you believe it? Let me say a word of thanks to our sponsor today, Robin's Donuts. There are 13 Robin's Donuts across PEI, serving up the tastiest coffee and baked goods, made fresh daily. Even the eggs on Robin's breakfast sandwiches are fresh cracked, never frozen. In these difficult times, it's important to support those who support you. And owner Kent Scales and his team are second to none in supporting island communities. So make sure you stop by Robin's Donuts today. Can, I, can we go back to the, the songs that were found in communities? Did you ever find any gems that just sort of that became your songs? Yeah, I would say this. Uh, um, Newfoundland, I, can, I, can, I could stay talking for hours on this, but Newfoundland, the songs that I, for now I'm 64, Sweet Forget Me Not, uh, The Star Logie Bay, The Cliffs of Bacaloo, Cape St. Mary's, I remember the night. That's I, iconic, you. Yeah, I remember the night I picked that song up in uh, Grand Falls, the late Dr. Jack Crosby, and fellow called Mike McGuire, another medical guy from Ireland, uh, three o'clock in the morning, this is 71, I think, after a gig at the St. Wesco Hotel in Grand, probably not there anymore, we're all saying, this guy comes down to the accordion and plays this tune. That's the first time I heard Cape St. Mary's, and I fell in love with it. So, in PEI, I got a lot of stuff in PEI, uh, Peter Ambley, I mean, Dermot made a great job of that song, and um, Cape Breton, of course, Places full of stuff there, and uh, I think, oh yeah, the song, the one song that we picked up in Nova Scotia, in Antigonish, was uh, Dark Island, and the first time I heard it, I fell in love with it, and it was a guy from Scotland that um, I think it was an insurance business. I wish to God I could remember his name now, but Dermot and Fergus heard the song, and they said to me, "You should sing this song." and that's how that came around. Jerry Squires did the album, God the late Jerry Squires, a great Newfoundland artist, and he did our cover for the Dark Island album in 1972, I think. Yeah. And he, what he did was, his wife was, was um, a potter, and he did these masks of our face, and I, st I still have it, look. Isn't it scary? Look at the size of the beard. It's not this Looks like Jesus a bit, right? <laughs> I don't have a crown of thorns or anything, but anyway, my eyes came out, somebody plucked my eyes out. <laughs> So, so my grandkids, I got five grandkids. If they don't behave themselves, I'm going to <laughs> set me after them, right? So, so let's talk about. I mean, uh, oh, do you want to talk about this? No, we've we've talked about that. But Did let's, we? let's talk about some of the the events that Ryan's fancy took part in. You know, you played literally for a president, a queen, prime ministers. I tell you, just a, a, a quick synopsis here. '76, um, the Tory leadership in uh, Robert Stanford was getting out, Joe Clark was elected. We were hired by the Mulroney camp to go to Ottawa. He didn't, he didn't make it, uh, Joe Clark won that one. Uh, President, or Prime Minister Trudeau, I think in 80 or 81, when Ronald Reagan was elected, uh, he had a gala performance at the National Arts Centre in Toronto, so, or in, in Ottawa, so we were part of that group and I met President Reagan and his wife Nancy, and he was a very charming man. And he actually stopped at me because I, I made a reference about Tipperary, and that's where his great-grandfather was born, in County Tipperary. And he was really, a, he was one of those guys, he locked on to you, he looked at you, and he was, didn't give a damn what was ahead of you or behind you, he was just one of those great communicators. Mm. I, um, then we 
did uh, who? Where's we? Oh yeah, um, the Queen was here some years ago. That was for an Irishman to play for the Queen. I think it was the hundredth anniversary of the Canadian Navy. She was the most charming lady, and you, you're not supposed to shake her hands until she puts her hand out. So she put. Her, I said, she said, thank you, Raylene. The late, late Raylene Rankin was singing with me, and she was uh, chatting with me. And I, and I said, I bent over. I said, Your Majesty, I love your hat. Well, she took a fit of laughing. Now I've gone public with it. A lot of people said, what did you say to the Queen? But she was a charming woman, very, oh my God. Um, and had a, a lovely smooth skin and just totally concentrating on what you were saying too. Uh, no, we, we've had, look, did, did any, we did a lot of great, we had phenomenal times. I mean, the performers that we performed with, we were some lucky. We were lucky, Paul, I'm telling you, I've had a tremendous life. And up to this stage, relatively good health after all the carry-on that we did over the years. You know, performing with Pete Seeger and Dinny Doherty and John Allen and all the crowd, the chieftains and I mean, all the crowd across all the folkies in North America and a lot of the, Euro the British Islands as well. And uh, Stan Rogers. We introduced Stan Rogers, by the way. The first time Stan Rogers played in Atlantic Canada, he opened up for Ryan's Fancy, speaking of in Canso. Wow. And then we went to Cornerbrook in Newfoundland, and now we're ready he for the. opened up for Ryan's Fancy yeah. and Canso. Yeah, yeah. And now there's the Stan Rogers Festival. For yeah, you. yeah. And the other connection, of course, is that you took one of the iconic photos of Stan Rogers in Lower Montague. I'll never forget it. I got a call from Stan, and I was living in Lower Montague at the time, in I think '77 or '78, and he said my kids were calling in would have been what then say eight, eight, six, and four. And Stan Rogers called at the ferry over in, uh, in New Brunswick. He said, I'm on the way. I'll get down to your place tonight around 12 o'clock. I have a new album. So he comes down, himself and Garney, and my kids are dead asleep. And the bus is coming around in the morning to pick him up for school. And uh, he comes in with, for uh, Fogarty's Cove. I still have the album that he signed off to me and stuff. Wow. So I didn't have any fancy drink, but I had moonshine. And we got in, had a few drinks. He sang all night. The kids slept. They're getting up in the morning at seven o'clock and we're down the kitchen table. And uh, I remember saying, and the bus is coming at eight o'clock to pick the girls up and a big, powerful six foot four guy. We're all singing and playing away. I said, Stan, sing once again, sing for, for 45 years from now for the girls. And uh, so they all went off to school. I said, before you go to bed now, we're going to go for a walk. And we walked down to where my neighbor at the time, Willie Miller from the Irish Rovers was living beside me and Laura Montague and uh, I had an instamatic uh, camera and I took a profile of, of Stan with a peak cap on him. That was his last album. That was, that was from, all you need is a camera and a proper moment. So I did that shot for, for, for Stan's album. Uh, like all good things, they must come to an end and Ryan's Fancy decided very deliberately to wrap things up. We did, yeah. We were running out of steam. We were uh, getting tired. Uh, our, 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 our families were, you know, the girls were getting at an age. I think our wives needed us to be closer at home. And uh, we wanted to, we were getting tired anyway. So it's a very tough business running around uh, for 12 or 13. And we're very close together, the three of us. We had. David McIsaac would play with us the, the odd time, and we had my cousin from Ireland, Dennis Carey, or Alistair McGillivray was our guitar player for three or four years from Cape Breton. And uh, we were just getting tired. I remember we were in Banff, National Arts Centre. I remember Dermot saying we were driving from Calgary to Banff. He said, you know, we, sh we should call it quits, but let's 
do, I said, well, boys, let's put a date. This was maybe September. Let's just put a date on it. So we put it for the 1st of July, 1982. I think that was it. And fulfill all our gigs and get on with it. And uh, it, was, it was very sad, but we knew we had to do it. And we had a series then with CBC out of Halifax here, Ryan's Fancy and Campus, mm -hmm. where we went around the different universities. And that was very that was our really our last series we did. Jack O'Neill, still alive from CBC, was the producer of that series. So that also afforded you an opportunity to create career number two. Uh, and, and, you know, from going as a, as a, a singer in pubs, smoke-filled pubs throughout Atlantic Canada to a, a, a suit and tie and an investment advisor, how did that transition happen? Well, a friend of mine who ran Wood Gundy here, the late Don Monroe, sort of, I was involved in Big Brother movement and he was the chairman of United Way and he was giving me a check and I asked him, Mr. Moreau, you dress very well, you've got a three-piece suit there, I don't know. What do you do? And he said, what do you do? And I said, do you know what, I'd like to be a broker. I'd like to join Wood Gundy. I heard good things about Wood Gundy. And I, I had a, I was strewn around with a few little penny stocks and stuff. I mean, well, I was a bit of a gambler in me, right? And uh, nowadays we call it investing. But uh, Don says, come in and have an interview with me. And so I had to do the psychological test. I got it. And he said, do the securities course. I got it. And he said, you've got to go to Toronto for an interview. And then if they accept you, you'll go for six months up there. And we'll fly you home every second weekend. Or, we'll, or your wife can come up and visit you on weekends or whatever. And um, so he said, by the way, do you have a suit? I said, oh, no, I don't. He said, go up to Duggars, up in Bears Road. Buy yourself a suit. And I called Duggar now to get, get you organized. And he said, and I was up at Duggar's, the late Duggar McNeil. And he said, you have a, you have the suit. You have an overcoat. No, I don't have an overcoat. I bought an overcoat. I remember navy blue suit and the, and, and the dark overcoat. I went up to Toronto, king of the heat, man. You didn't have a suit or an overcoat, but you did have a pocket full of contacts that oh, you had met throughout well, your that's, career. Then I came back here. That was fantastic. And you know, I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I, I knew where to get the information. And, uh, and Don Monroe, God bless Don for taking me under his wing. He was a, he was a huge help. But you also, I mean, as that career evolved, then you also uh, sort of developed an entrepreneurial side, uh, Highland Classic Beer in Cape Breton. Which, see, that was, Nova that, Scotia Crystal. See, once I was in the group, once I broke away at 23, leaving the civil service with a wife that's pregnant and have two more kids, and heading to a foreign land. With, I had a hundred bucks in my pocket when I came to Canada. I still have the passport. And my wife couldn't stay. She's pregnant. She couldn't stay with, we couldn't afford it. So she stayed with a friend of hers from Belfast. She knew from, she was a nurse in Toronto, had married this German guy. And I stayed with a bunch of orangutans from Dublin. <laughs> she says, I got the better part of that deal. <laughs> but anyway, when, when <laughs> so I think that there was always that, in, on, that freedom that I, I found it very hard to be a nine to fiver. And, uh, and when I joined Wood Gundy in the 80s, that gave me a bit of freedom as well. And you, you, were, you were rewarded as hard as you, work as hard as you can, or do not. And so I worked my ass off. I had three kids, I had a mortgage, blah, blah, blah. And then 87, Billy Ricks, the late Billy Ricks in PEI called me up. He said, there's a great opportunity to start a, a brewery. We were way ahead of all the, all the craft breweries today. And we survived for a year or two. Mr. Mussett, who, uh, who was the, the brewer that created the modern day Keats, he was our brew consulting brewmaster. We had a great product. The marketing at the time wasn't like the way it is today. People who come in and buy the stuff off the shelves and all. It was very restrictive. Nova Scotia liquor 
uh, commission was the only customer we had. But that, that was a fun project. And then in the 1990s, uh, I got into the investment management business with a company in Toronto. I left with Gundy, and uh, I was t and I was going to Japan represent with the Nova Scotia Drama League. Uh, in an international amateur drama That's, festival. That is international incident written all over it. <laughs> so somebody said, bring something that, uh, oh, can't tell you, share you those stories, but anyway, uh, maybe we'll do it sometime and when I'm dead you can, you can uh, publish it. But uh, the, um, the, uh, we were told, uh, said the Japanese, your host, they, they love little gifts and trinkets. And I was looking around for Canadians, Canadiana stuff. And being grown up in, with uh, the, the crystal thing in Ireland, which was like everybody bought crystal for everything. Um, so there was no crystal made in North America, actually. And I remember taking some pewter that was made here, seagull pewter. And then that's how I got involved in the crystal thing. I went home and I got guys that were uh, ex-Waterford guys. Waterford, they were becoming more mechanized and there was some of the old craftsmen were made redundant. So we started off in 95. We started off Nova Scotia crystal. And today it's still had its ups and downs. It's one of the most beautiful uh, handmade, it's probably one of the only mouth-blown hand-cut crystal companies in the world. And had its problems up and down to the recession of 2000. And Anne Campbell was my first employee, herself and Christine Vaughan. Anne owns it now, doing a fantastic job. And, and Christine is still there. And the company, we got 40, 45 employees with 15, 16, uh, 17 uh, first-class craftsmen. But you're not involved in the company anymore. No, I'm anymore. not involved yeah. anymore. No, no, no. Um, the the some of the exercises or, or opportunities that you got involved with. There was there was another television show that you did individually oh. up in the roof where you sort of. That was in '95, '96, I think. And Jack Kellum uh, was our producer of of the series. Jack, by the way, created 22 Minutes in Newfoundland and then came up here. Jack Kellum was a fantastic. Uh, uh, director, producer, he now retired, living in Ontario. And uh, I did that series, I think it was two years of 13 half hour shows where we sort of featured up and coming uh, talent in Atlantic Canada. You know, for example, I did the first show that Natalie McMaster did. I went down to half, we went down to Craignish, or Troy, and we did a half hour with her down there. I did a half hour in John Morris, late John Morris Rankin, did a half hour in the late um, Jerry Holland. but. Barish Juan, PEI, St. John uh, String Quartet from St. John, New Brunswick, uh, all different groups from all over the place. So that, w that was a fun thing to do. I was, I was a businessman in the suit in those days, but... Uh, Entertainer I, at heart. I, I, always, that'll always be there. I can't... Yeah. And you know, somebody, I forgot, I, I mentioned Jack Kellum and, and I mentioned uh, 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 Manny Pitson, a guy that's been through, with us through all this, is still at the business promoting and creating and a very artistic guy. He's got drum on the go. He's my friend Brooks Diamond. He was an incredible at university. He met us in 72 or three. He was at Dalhousie and Brooks has been a great supporter of ours for years and he's an amazing man. I think he, what he's brought to the artistic community and performing community in uh, in 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 Atlantic Canada, uh, hopefully it's, it's, it's recognized and acknowledged. And Dennis, um, there's a big award to my left. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's to my right. It is. Yeah, it's a really heavy Peter Bronze or whatever it is, Maple Leaf, music, um, music here. No, I don't know where they are. It's a sort of a Celtic design thing. I was very fortunate two years ago 
the Tipperary Association in Dublin have this thing every year where they honour person of the year and they have a Hall of Fame thing. And it can be either for business, for arts and culture, or athletics or sports or whatever. So I was fortunate two years ago to be nominated to the Hall Tipperary Hall of Fame. That's a big deal too. And uh, so I had a big dinner in Dublin and some of my friends came over for me. We had a great time. The Canadian ambassador turned up, Kevin Vickers from New Brunswick, and uh, we know we had a great time. Very nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, part of that, I mean, uh, your, as your business career evolved, you've, you've been known to take uh, a keen interest in cutting-edge local companies. And you want to speak to a couple that you've well, been involved the in? Well, the first thing I got, a friend of mine, Wade Daw, and myself, uh, my next-door neighbour, Dr. Wally Kimmins, uh, who was the Dean of Science at Dalhousie University when I lived in Edward Street, uh, he was telling me about this thing. He was trying to curtail the seal population in Canada over 20 years ago, and he was trying to develop this vaccine, this delivery system. And um, so Wally took it out of the university, what, maybe 15 years ago? And uh, Wade and myself got involved. He was trying to raise some dough, and uh, we we uh, we did that. We're still working on on, on animal stuff, and Warwick got sick, and we got a CEO who was the ex Dr. Randall Chase, renowned uh, vaccine person globally, who worked with Sanofi Pasteur, and he said, "Well, you know what? This applies to to uh, this whole immunotherapy thing. It applies to people as well." That's 12, 13 years ago, and, and it's now. The cutting-edge technology is, for yeah. cancer research. We're now, Wade, Wade, to his credit, was on the board. I was on the board for a while, too. We've, we've raised probably 60 or 70 million to the public markets. We took it public back 11, 12 years ago. And we're, getting, uh, we're now on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And uh, I'm doing a bit of promotion here and the NASDAQ. But it, we have a real, real, real company. And we're in very exciting uh, stuff with but The neat with thing is, because of your foresight, Halifax is now central to, and it started off as a seal, seal coal thing, exactly. is now one of the leading immunovaccine companies in the world. It, yeah, and it's in Halifax. It's in Halifax, and we've 70 employees in Dartmouth, our technicians and PhDs and stuff. And I think uh, in the next six months, we're now, we're now in 2020, uh, we're working some stuff on lymphoma. Uh, preliminary results have come out, or reported for Christmas. And we're pretty advanced on a phase two with ovarian cancer, uh, headed up by Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto and some other hospitals in North America. But it's very, it's the most exciting thing because I know ovarian cancer is a tough one. And I've lost some friends that have died from ovarian cancer. And it's very exciting that we may, we may have found the holy grail. Just keep our fingers crossed. And uh, there's a company called Neat, which is a oh, neat, neat. Oh, which no, is a neat company. That's, that's from my own. K-N-E-A-T. K-N-E-A-T. A uh, company uh, that I discovered uh, about five years ago in Ireland with a bunch of uh, with a bunch of engineers that had left Pfizer, and they were uh, creating that mortgage their houses and they had got some government money and some friends and they had been already four or five years developing this software product for um, the validation paperless validation of uh, pharmaceutical production uh, globally and that has gone in leaps and bounds and again I want to thank my friend Wade for helping me to fund that and take it public and that's a great, we now have 70 people working and that's five miles from my home in Ireland which used to be a farmer's field one time so that's, I've one here and one there. It's there exciting. you go, you're two homes. Yeah, <laughs> two homes, yeah. You are so I can write off on. my trips to Ireland, right? <laughs> Don't say that yeah. publicly. Anyway, <laughs> look it, it, it's 50 years since Ryan's Fancy started and probably when you're in the middle of it, the last thing you're thinking of is legacy. Um, 
but it, it, the band has had a significant impact. And I'm wondering if you've given some thought to what you and Dermot and Fergus managed to pull off. Well, I think, I suppose to go back to the Helen Creighton thing there, I, I presume in 2004, that lifetime achievement, that was probably for some of the stuff we'd done. And I, I, I'll just give you, oh, by the way, I had the privilege of uh, interviewing Helen Creighton in uh, 1975, I think, beautiful lady. So I've, I, I've donated that to the, the archives here. She's a beautiful woman. The work she did in the 30s and 40s and 50s, totally against the grain. I think that maybe we just, our timing is perfect. I mean, it's, it, life is timing, really. You can be the sharpest. Uh, uh, if you don't get the timing right, it's like golf. You, if you're off a bit, you, mm. you can lose the tournament in the, in the last nine holes, right? If your timing is off a bit. So we had... Um, uh, I, I, I think what happened out of here is a lot of these groups that came up behind us, you know, just go to Newfoundland, the Irish descendants. I remember Con O'Brien's father and his grandfather coming to see us in Newfoundland. Before Con was born, I think. Um, Great Big Sea, there's, uh, there's a whole bunch, Larry Foley, a whole bunch of other uh, groups in Newfoundland. Um, John Morris Rankin, late John Morris Rankin, he told me when he was 1976 or 70, we'd be playing in the arena in Mabu, and John has said, I wouldn't go to sleep. I said, open the window, hear you guys, hear the racket on the go. You had a pretty close relationship with John Morris and Raylene. Oh, I did. Were, well, I got John Morris to come up to live here in, in, the, uh, in the 80s, late 80s. And uh, he, he was great. Oh, he, he, was, he was phenomenal. They were the whole family. And, um, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're talking about, John Morris was, I always said it, and he never minded me saying this, uh, you have a, a young head and an, old, and an old timer's body. He was so talented, he was unbelievably talented. Sh sh refined, shy guy. Then the Barry McNeils, you know, in 76, we were up in Washabuck doing a show there, and uh, Stuart, Stuart McNeil was 10 years of age then. Jesus, so you know what happened to them? So I think uh, the legacy, all the television shows are done. We got people at that era, particularly in Newfoundland in, and Cape Breton, they were on the way out. Uh, older people and they don't, their types don't don't exist anymore. So we have those on film. We have we did legacy, I suppose, 15, 16 LPs, recordings, whatever you want to call them. And uh, we were just, we were incredibly fortunate. Like to this, so far so good. And um, you know, and you're dead right. Mention the name still. I mean, that's ECMA awards. I saw people cry that night. And. The following week, in, 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 um, I was in Halifax, and a guy, I think he was a minister in the PEI government, he came over himself and his wife, and he said, he saw the ECMA things, he said, what you guys have, he just thanked me for it. He wow. said, I just got to see you guys the whole time when you were in Charlottetown. Do you have a favorite memory of performing? Of performing? Uh, God, 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 God. I think to me, to, to me was to go, we did that television show in Ireland in 1980, one hour special that CBC and Irish Television co-produced. And I think that to me was one of the hardest things, not the National Arts Centre or the Arts and Culture Centre or big concert halls, whatever, was to go into my hometown in my little village and do a concert. In Newport? Yeah, in Newport County, Tipperary. And that was incredibly rewarding. Did you sing Newport Town? I did indeed sing Newport Town. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've, I've seen the world, Paul. I've been seeing all the British eyes. We used to tour all across the northern states with uh, all these little Irish communities and, and, you know, maritime communities in Boston or Buffalo or whatever. 
and uh, every year we did a little tour from um, organized by Brooks Diamond. Brooks, you're all well paid, by the way. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I don't know how we, we survived. And that was great fun. I remember one time the Saskatchewan Arts Council invited us. I thought nobody heard of us. Just a 13 concert, sold out concerts, again from the television shows. But you know, Different era. I mean, yeah. there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't social no, media, but, but to a certain extent, I'm guessing Facebook, social media is is a friend of your legacy now. I mean, there's a Ryan's Fancy Facebook page that'll put up YouTube videos, and I don't think you're a follower of it or anything like that, but it's neat. I got uh, the wank in the... Uh, oh my uh, gosh, uh, we, yeah. got, we, cannot, we cannot go... I, I, I remember it being in Glasgow in 2014 with you during the Commonwealth Games, and we were walking down the street, and you tell us what happened because you're you are you, 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 you well you're a YouTube star yeah. and and you had a, a video actually go viral after the financial collapse of 2008, yeah. and this young commerce student ran out of a bar as we walked down the street, grabbed you by the arm and said, "Are you the wankin banker?" Yeah, and yeah. you replied, "Yes, sir, I am." Yeah, and that has that has happened a lot. That has tell us about the video. That, that, that has happened. Uh, I was being t asked about the situation, uh, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger, and I was getting so. Which is uh, the Irish economy. Yeah. So I, I said to a friend of mine, a television guy here, Terry Fulmer, I said, Have you got that camera? So I want to do a, a minute rant on what's going on there. That's how that happened. That happened so quick, so fast, off the cuff, no rehearsal, no nothing. It became viral like in about two weeks. And I had millions of views. Yeah, millions and millions. I've met people, met, met people in Toronto. I was on a plane ride from London to Dublin uh, a few years ago, and a guy heard me talk, and he was flying from Australia, and he heard me. Met a guy from Finland in Toronto a few years ago that saw it. So it's a bit, it's, it was, it was real fun, but I got to dig in at the same time, you know that? Yeah, and, and uh, well, I th people can go. Google Wankin Banker. Yeah. Be careful how you spell Wankin, but yeah. uh, but yeah. it's it's a wonderful video. Yeah, and and it was really neat just to see you recognized for something completely different totally. than what we recognize you for. No, this thing has been more recognized than than the old group. You know that, and uh, I mean, I, anytime I've had friends, <laughs> I was down in a dare in County Limerick a few years ago, and I'm rushing in, and this young couple are rushing out. Hey, sorry, I said, almost crashed into me. Lena's restaurant, I remember it well. And uh, said, you're, you're your man, right? I said, I'm your man, all right. <laughs> and it's funny. And then another time in Limerick City, having a coffee, sitting out in the street, and my buddy Tony Quinn is with me. And across, there was a coffee, another, uh, those two guys across the street. And Tony said, those guys are laughing. I wonder what are they? They're laughing, they're laughing, laughing away. So I'm laughing back at them. I don't know why we're laughing. So they came over, and then they introduced themselves. This, <laughs> goes back to the wank and banker again, right? Right, and there's never been a sequel to that. Well, I did a sort of a Wall Street. It's hard to do stuff. You, you can't know? make a virus. You, you can't. can't. No, yeah. it has to come, come from here. You yeah. can write it. You can't think too much about it. You just let it go from down here. Yeah. Um, I think we're starting to get a little short on time, Dennis. Yeah. Favorite song, favorite concert? Let's start with favorite concert. <sighs> God, I, the concerts, I don't know. I, I, with that, I, don't, I really... It was always a pleasure, as I said, to play at home. It was always a pleasure to play at the Arsenal Culture Centre here. St John's, Newfoundland is a very special place, really is. The Confederation Centre. You know, a lot of the Irish things, our last gig in Ireland was with the Fury Brothers and the late Jim McCann, and we did it at the National uh, Stadium in Dublin, 3,000 people. That was 1982. And wow. They, they did three concerts, three 
one hour, half hour television shows out of that for Irish television. And uh, it's just fun. It's just something that, it, you know, the kids are, I'm very fortunate to have five grandkids and they're all healthy and they all love music. And uh, we've got about a minute left, Dennis. Uh -oh. What's your favorite song? And could we ever convince you to uh, sing us out favorite as we song. go? God, I could, Jesus. Favorite song? Oh, I'll tell you, in honor of your good self, your father was born in Barra Island, and we had the privilege of going to Barra Island up in the Hebrides, um, is that six years ago? 2014, yeah. Oh my God, you're in the Commonwealth Games. Anyway, and I remember being at your cousin's place, and he said, would you sing us our song? And I said, what's that? He says, Dark Island. So anyway, I'd, I'd just sing us out with a chorus. Oh, be brilliant. Where's my orchestra? <laughs> Where's Dermot when I need him? <laughs> oh, I love my childhood, I'm dreaming of thee. As the steamer leaves Oban and passes Tyree, soon I'll capture the magic that lingers for me. When I'm back once more upon the dark island. And as they say in Gaelic, Shinawil. And it's hard to beat that. Well, that's a wrap for episode four of Because Life is Local. Thanks to our sponsor, Kent Scales, and the gang at Robin's Donuts. And thanks to Dennis Ryan for sharing some stories and some tunes. I'm Paul McNeil. You've been listening to Because Life is Local. <laughs>